America. In the garage of his home at Waterbury, Connecticut, George Metesky, a Lithuanian, made 32 bombs, which he placed in various parts of New York. And a 16-year hunt ended with his arrest. A grievance against his former employers was the motive behind the explosions, which caused injury to 15 people. Now awaiting trial, the mad bomber, as he's called, can cool his heels behind prison bars. This is It's All Relative. And this is the third and final episode in the series about the Mad Bomber of New York. I've said this before, but if you're starting this podcast with this episode, you're doing it wrong. At least go back two episodes to start with the first in the series. Warning to the listeners who somehow didn't realize that this is a true crime podcast, the topics we cover are harsh. Please use your common sense to decide if this is going to bring out your inner Karen. Then own your choices and just don't listen any further. To those of you who have been impatiently waiting for this episode to drop, if you remember, I had a particularly nasty case of pneumonia. I'm still dealing with the aftermath. I apologize on behalf of Streptococcus pneumonia, since it certainly will not apologize for itself. For the rest of you, the Isley Brothers will set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. And by the way, that clip at the front was a 1957 newsreel from Gaumont, British, and Reuters. The case of the Mad Bomber of New York is relatively unknown today, and yet several crucial topics are highlighted in this case, illustrating just how far we have, or have not, come. First, the practices and procedures of the bomb squad were altered and tested over the 47 bombs Metesky planted. On July 4, 1940, a bomb went off at the British Pavilion in the New York World's Fair. Bomb squad techs Joseph Lynch and Freddie Socha had no protective gear, no special equipment. The explosion blew a crater in the ground and killed them both. From that point on, with every bomb the squad investigated from the first one left by Metesky in November 1940, that same year, to the parts taken out of Metesky's house in 1957 when he was caught, the members of the Bond Squad knew, vividly, that they may not go home to their families that night. Would the steel-woven envelope and steel-caned Big Bertha do their jobs and hold the blast? 
if the bomb does explode, will their new protective gear keep them safe? The Metesky case also signified a real turn in the use of brain science in the finding and prosecuting of criminals. Consulting Dr. James Brussel about what kind of person the police should be looking for was an extraordinary thing to do in 1956. But it wasn't just the asking. Brussel figured out the criminal's typology with an accuracy not often seen today, let alone in the 1950s. This was the birth of profiling and the naissance of forensic science. The commissioner, Stephen Kennedy, had begun his police career to the dissatisfaction of his parents. Good Irish Catholics, they had wanted him to be a priest. He was known for reading and listening to opera, which put him a bit on the outs with the rest of the NYPD. He had finished his GED, university and law school at night, and he had won the begrudging respect of his fellow cops. It was this difference that had given him the job as New York City's police commissioner. The first thing Kennedy did in his role as commissioner was to appoint another cerebral Irishman to run the crime lab, Captain Howard Finney. Finney held three graduate degrees and insisted on seriousness and procedure in his crime lab. And that lab was state-of-the-art. From its description, it was more advanced than some of the labs in use today. Quote, again, from Incendiary by Michael Cannell. Within one week, in 1952, the lab received visitors from police forces in Iran, Pakistan, India, Israel, England, Tokyo, Ecuador, and Hawaii. End quote. During the 1940s and 50s, the bomb squad was under the purview of the crime lab. And it was that lab that introduced the envelope, Big Bertha, and the protective clothing the squad wore, and the new methodology for safely disarming the bombs they would come in contact with. It was also Finney who, within the forensic community, had heard about the work Dr. James Brussel had been dietary. Dr. Brussel was boisterous and held a keen intelligence. He had his hand in many pies and had the fortune to come into the field of psychiatry during its Freudian glory. All of these things made certain that he was not only very well known, he was also very good at what he did, and, in particular, got more positive results than his predecessors. Captain Finney knew the lab had done everything they knew how to do to identify the bomber. He knew the stalwart proponents of traditional policing had done all they knew to find the bomber. What they now needed was a way to identify suspects. So Finney took the case file, along with two of his men, to see Dr. Brussel. What Brussel identified was very close to reality. Brussel called his method reverse psychiatry. Whether using Brussel's term, or the term used now, criminal profiling, George Metesky fit the bill. Brussel would even admit in later years that getting it so right on his first case put an undue amount of pressure on him for the ensuing cases. For example, he was asked to give his expertise to the Boston Strangler case in 1962. The entire team was convinced it was actually two stranglers due to a particularly stark change in M.O. Brussel wanted to second-guess himself, but he stuck to his theory and his profile of one man. When they caught Albert Salvo, Brussel was proved correct. Yet DeSalvo was sent to prison on assault and burglary, despite having confessed to the Strangler's crimes. There are many people, including the infamous profiler John Douglas, who do not believe DeSalvo was responsible for all the rape murders. DeSalvo's family are still trying to clear his name from being a serial killer. I don't want to appear to put all my belief in forensics or in profiling. 
This is a much bigger issue than we have room to discuss here. But it is important to note the cases, such as that of George Metesky, in which law enforcement and forensic tools are used well, correctly, and have helped stop, in this case one person, from doing something heinous. In 1957, the journey was far from over for George Metesky. He had spent five weeks in Bellevue, reportedly being assessed as to his mental state. Three years previously, Durham v. United States had altered the long-standing McNaughton rule, which had based an accused's ability to be tried and convicted of a crime on the accused's understanding of right and wrong. Durham eliminated that vague test, stating that an accused should not be tried for a crime if that crime was a product of a mental disease or a defect. The test to determine that disease or defect was the word of a professional psychiatrist. The McNaughton Rule had been in use for over a hundred years, and, as is the course of most changes in the world, there was pushback from some corners of society. In the case of George Metesky, pushback came from the sitting judge on his Manhattan case, Judge Mullen. Judge Mullen saw the world in a very few shades of gray. Criminals should be punished for their crimes, and that punishment should be swift and harsh. The new Durham rule was just the liberal head doctors coming up with excuses for bad behavior. In George's case, Mullen refused to accept the testimony of Bellevue psychiatrist Dr. Cassidy. Cassidy testified that Metesky was a paranoid schizophrenic who could not offer a plea because he did not fully understand what he was pleading to. With George sitting in the courtroom right in front of him, Mullen entered a plea of not guilty for Metesky, since George wouldn't, or couldn't in this case, say anything. Judge Mullen also determined that, as he believed Metesky to be fit enough for trial, George had no further reason to be in Bellevue, and Mullen remanded Metesky to the Manhattan House of Detention. The warden at the jail didn't want anything to go wrong with this high-profile prisoner. George was kept away from the other inmates and kept on permanent suicide watch. The city commissioner of corrections, Anna Cross, set to work almost immediately working to get Metesky transported back to Bellevue. Cross knew George needed mental care and the jail had no way of getting him that. But a transfer needed a court order and Mullen not only became suspiciously unavailable, he had already given his opinion that Metesky did not need psychiatry. When Cross went around Mullen to another judge, Mullen let word get back to her that he wasn't going to let that happen. Cross then went to the press, stating that, as Commissioner of Corrections, she would do what she thought best for her prisoner and her prison. Mullen backed down. Quote, judge Mullen, now sounding contrite, downplayed the run-in. He denied any tension with Cross. He said he had simply tried to jumpstart the stalled proceedings. I remanded the defendant in order to break his stay in Bellevue to prevent his indefinite stay there for observation. I don't believe in letting people hibernate in the psychopathic ward or be used as guinea pigs by psychiatrists when they may be menaces to the public and more properly confined in penal institutions. End quote. Publicly, Mullen did not want to appear unreasonable. In reality, he was a mule and not about to change his direction. Once he held the psychiatric report in his hands, it might as well have been toilet paper, although he probably would have gotten more out of the toilet paper. Metesky's lawyer, James Murray, took Judge Mullen to task at the next hearing. He even asked him to recuse himself. Mullen refused and then proceeded to do what he wanted to in his own courtroom. 
The poor psychiatrist who testified this time was browbeaten. Mullins seemed to take delight in making sure the man used plain English, after which he dramatically refused to accept the psychiatric report. Quote, It was the first time anybody could recall a judge disregarding an undisputed medical opinion. To try an insane person makes the court ridiculous, the Journal American wrote in an editorial. This is a case for doctors, not for lawyers and judges. If the guy is what he seems to be, a hospital, not a courtroom, is definitely indicated. In response, Judge Mullen told the press that juries disregarded testimonies all the time. By the same reasoning, why couldn't a judge disregard the testimony of psychiatrists? End quote. Winter started to turn into spring. The beginning of April, 1957, while Mullen was chomping at the bit to get things rolling, George had developed a bad cough. The tuberculosis he had somehow overcome 20 years previous had actually just gone dormant. It was now reasserting itself with a vengeance. Metesky had to be quarantined to avoid infecting everyone in Bellevue. If he were made to attend a trial, doctors were predicting the stress would likely kill him. There was also the very real problem that he could infect everyone in the courthouse. Metesky had one saving grace. His crimes had been committed in Manhattan and Brooklyn, so two different courts had brought charges. In fact, it was the Brooklyn judge's willingness to sign the order returning George to Bellevue that tipped the scales making Mullen have to sign too. With the sudden change in George's health, Marie requested an emergency meeting with Judge Leibowitz, the assigned judge in Brooklyn. If they could get a competency hearing done and dusted before Mullen's trial began, they could do an end run around Mullen and send George directly to the hospital. The biggest issue, other than Mullen's wrath, was that the law required George to be present. But George was too sick to leave the hospital, and the current hospital where he was housed was in Manhattan, not Brooklyn. Judge Leibovitz could not hold court outside his own jurisdiction. A compromise was made. Metesky would travel by ambulance to a prison hospital in King County, Brooklyn. They would hold the hearing there in the rec room. George looked like death. The antibiotics seemed to be doing nothing, and he had been given a life expectancy of weeks. He coughed so hard and expelled so much blood, those in attendance expected him to cough up a literal lung. Everyone was advised to wear masks and gowns for their own protection. Another of Metesky's psychiatrists, Dr. Laverne, testified, quote, Of the thousands of schizophrenics that I have had the opportunity of examining and seeing, in my opinion, he is one of the most dangerous to society and one of the most psychotic I have ever seen. End quote. On April 18th, eight days after the competency hearing, George Metesky was declared medically insane by Judge Leibowitz, and Leibowitz committed him to Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. Note I have heard this pronounced Matawan and Mateoan. For some reason, I'm believing Matawan, so I'm going with that. The next day, George went by ambulance 70-odd miles north. Judge Mullen insisted that his court reserve the right to recall Metesky to trial, and then began working on getting him sent back to Manhattan and into his court. And now we come to the final situation highlighted by the case of the Mad Bomber. The state of mental health care mid-last century. I honestly have a hard time seeing being sent to Matawan as a win even if it was so hard one. Every horrible trope anyone has ever heard of concerning insane asylums 
was in play in Matawan. In 1957, there were really no treatments for mental health issues. In the U.S., Thorazine had only been in use for about three years. When it was effective, Thorazine also came with some serious side effects that, relatively speaking, made the improvements rather moot. The patient just traded one set of terrible symptoms for others. Haloperidol, approved for use in 1958, elicited similar problems. Other treatments at the time involved being forced into a diabetic coma, induced fever, lobotomies, and electroshock therapy. In addition, the staff at such places tended to use beatings and torture at will. George reported that the night guards in Matawan took particular interest in nightly beatings of a fellow inmate. His screams would terrorize the rest of the inmates. The effect was so brutal that the inmate eventually committed suicide. Much of the time, psychiatric hospitals worked as being just another kind of prison, especially Matawan, which was run by the Department of Corrections. No one is cured in these places. No one is helped. Certainly not George. But somehow he made it through. The antibiotics that seemed to not be working were actually just working very slowly for George. But they did, in fact, work. The man who'd been expected not to live 15 weeks spent 15 years following every rule but one. He refused to wear the hospital pajamas. He would only wear his double-breasted suit. Mullen eventually gave up on George ever being assessed as fit for trial. George, however, did not. He continued to assert his sanity and demanded, on more than one occasion, to be tried or released. He took up a letter campaign, surprise, surprise, to anyone and everyone. He navigated the paperwork to petition the court to appeal his confinement. But each time, the testimony of his psychiatrists figuratively damned him to remain in Matawan. In 1971, an attorney named Kristen Booth Glenn filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of a host of Matawan patients, Metesky included, claiming that Matawan was run by state corrections and was effectively a prison. Gomez v. Miller, 1972, claimed that those being held at Matawan were, therefore, being imprisoned without process of a trial. In addition, many of these inmates were in the prison of Matawan without any recourse to be released, well past the time they would have been incarcerated for if they had been tried and convicted. In a rather non-sucky ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that Glenn's filing had merit. 276 inmates were released into care facilities run by medical practitioners rather than by corrections officers. Seven months later, Metesky was pronounced fit for release. As an aside, Matawan closed as a hospital and the buildings now make up Fishkill Correctional Facility. The records from the hospital, as well as Danamora's records from its closing, are kept at the New York State Archives in Albany. And I quote from the archives website, This series contains case files that document the commitment diagnosis, and treatment of inmates of the Matawan and Danamora State Hospitals for the Criminally Insane. The bulk of the case files contain legal papers documenting the commitment process, admission sheets, statistical data forms, ward admission records, physical examination reports, criminal identification forms furnished by both the FBI and the Department of Correction, 
inmates' photographs, laboratory reports, psychiatric reports, and a transcript of psychiatrist's interview with the inmate. End quote. These records go from 1880 to 1960, approximate dates, I'm sure, and consist of 230 cubic feet of material. My God. December 1972, New York State dismissed all 27 charges against George for the bombings in order for him to be released from psychiatric care unfettered. George was 70 years old when he made his way home to Connecticut. It may not surprise you that George wrote to his sisters every week of his confinement. In 1963, however, Anna passed away. George returned to Connecticut to May alone. He died in 1994. One last thing I want to address is the manifestation of George's schizophrenia and the psychosocial constructs that kept him blowing things up for 16 years. George held a fixation of hatred towards Con Ed. He also was convinced everything would be fine if he could just get compensatory damages for his work injuries. When James Brussel consulted with Captain Finney about the bomber, he made a few missteps. One of which was that he used the age of older than 30 as the age of the bomber, in part because he understood that schizophrenia symptoms do not manifest until at least that age, age 30. We now know that by a large margin, symptoms of schizophrenia begin manifesting in the late teens and early 20s. This is not to say that schizophrenia never manifests later in life, but for the most part, it is in early adulthood. The question then arises, how much of George's story about his accident in 1931 can even be believed? Quote, The pressure built like a volcano until it could no longer be contained. Metesky was walking by as the pressure reached the breaking point. The boiler's cast iron walls shattered in a single violent instant. A draft of toxic fumes engulfed him. He lurched four steps backward, clutching his throat. Chemicals singed the capillaries of his lungs with pain like a thousand needle pricks. His throat burbled. Blood spluttered its way up his gorge. He coughed hard and long. The hacks and barks growing progressively more violent. One knee, then the other, sank to the cold concrete floor. Two co-workers, Kavanaugh and Casey, alerted by the blast, found Metesky lying in a splatter of hacked-up blood. He explained what had happened between shallow gasps. He got no sympathy from the foreman, Purdy, who, by Metesky's account, put him to work loading lumber in the back of a car. Apparently, the coughing and blood were normal occurrences at Con Edison, Metesky said, because when I told these three guys, they weren't a bit surprised. After 20 minutes, he collapsed again. They let me lay there for two hours. I finally recovered enough to get up, end quote. Con Ed's records show that something happened, but what or how serious is up for the debate. If Metesky was primed to see injustice on his own part, it could easily have been a not-so-serious accident and Metesky's own brain manifesting the serious nature of his injuries. It also seems a bit suspicious that George mentions people just putting him back to work and then letting him lie on the ground for two hours. All this in addition to no one making any indication that the boiler has blown and is now unusable, and no one is cleaning up the mess or trying to fix it. Additionally, those three of his Con Ed colleagues reportedly testified at a hearing that Metesky had held a bloody handkerchief over his face, but it was due to a nosebleed, not the boiler. 
One of the men stated that George wasn't even at work on the day the injury supposedly occurred. Metesky held on to his hatred of these men to the point of, once he had begun leaving bombs in public places in New York City, hallucinating the three sitting down across from him on the subway and immediately sneering at him and making snarky comments. It is completely plausible that George had a schizophrenic episode in 1931. His sisters were trained that George got what George wanted. They had a volatile mother who essentially inured them to angry outbursts and kept them insulated from the rest of society. They would not have questioned George having a blowout about anything. He was definitely a part of the screaming match at the door of a young black family who was new to the neighborhood. So even if he didn't lose a screw in front of them, they were trained not to question him, the sisters that is, and to support him. If he said Con Ed was evil, then Con Ed was evil. Their only question to him would be something like, So how many stamps do you need us to buy? As long as no one got too close, no one would know he had a serious screw loose. The Metesky's were professionals at keeping other people at arm's length, and so no one noticed his crazy was, well, truly crazy. Sadly, we know practically nothing about George's treatment. It's hard to believe he spent 16 years at Matawan with no change, and then after only seven months at Creedmoor, he is fit to be discharged. While I believe the approach of the two facilities were very different, it is still rather suspicious. Quote from Incendiary Accordingly, on December 12, 1973, a state trial judge dismissed the 47-count indictment against him, clearing the way for his release. Many of us had sleepless nights because of the terror you were causing, the judge told him. I expect there will be no repetition. I think the judge is right, Metesky answered. There won't be any repetition. A front-page New York Times story published on the day of his release quoted Metesky as saying that he had no intention of returning to violence. When the reporter asked if he still held a grudge against Con Ed, Metesky said, I think it's best not to talk about that just now. I think the judge is right. And I think it's best not to talk about that just now. These statements do not suggest that Metesky has conquered his demons. More that he's just ignoring them. It's not really a comforting thought. But the man lived to be 90 essentially outliving everyone involved in his case, including both of his sisters. And there were no more bombs associated with Metesky. BT-dubs, what happened to his dad? No one says. He just disappears. If you like what you've heard, like this episode, rate the podcast, and write a review. If you don't like the podcast, why are you still listening? Drop into Insta and the Patreon. Links are in the show notes. Biggie will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. What you looking at? The doctor said I need about three weeks of recovery, but the nurses is loving me. I took karate for 13 years, Karen. It's my half, feeding me breakfast and giving me a sponge. Look at this. You know what that could do? Nigga, I'm getting high, getting head on the beach. Chilling, sitting on about half a million. Notorious B.I.G. Party tonight. I'm in there. All the time. Papa kicked the war rise, raw flows, and that's how it goes.